Welcome to Working Dog Radio. Broadcasting the Bite. This episode of Working Dog Radio is being brought to you in part by RayAllen.com. RayAllen.com, your one-stop shop for everything dog-related. Not just canine, not just search and rescue, not just civilian sport, and not just pets. All of it. Everything related to a dog you can find at RayAllen.com. Be sure to mention the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO for 10% off your next order. RayAllen.com for all things dogs. Uh, it's Ted. Eric and I make no bones about the fact that we love Dogtra. We've been using them even long before they were sponsors of the podcast. Uh, my favorite is the 1900S hands-free. I typically have the remote in my pocket and I just put the other remote inside my glove or on my wrist and I can use that thing all day long. It's fantastic. Dogtra is going to continue to be a sponsor of the podcast and because of that you guys get a discount so if you head to dogtra.com any unit over two hundred dollars you get a ten percent off if you use the discount code wdr10 that's working dog radio one zero wdr10 dogtra.com go get it This episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you by HITS Training and Consulting. Next year, August 13th through the 16th in Chicago, Illinois, the number one police canine conference in the world, hands down. The most amazing instructors there. Wait till you see the vendor show. If you thought last year was big, you haven't seen anything. There's going to be vendors from every facet of the canine industry giveaways everything you can think of great times during the day great times at night ted and i'll be there working dog radio booth gonna have a good time hits 2019 don't wait register now hits canine.net truesintcanine.com that's the letter k the number nine truesintcanine.com actual explosive odors suspended in silica not a pseudo hit them up truesintcanine.com we here at Working Dog Radio are so proud of our relationship with Southern Coast Canine. Bill Heiser does some amazing work down there in Florida. Go see for yourself all they have to offer at www.southerncoastcanine.com. That's Southern Coast, the letter K, the number nine, dot com. Southern Coast Canine. Better training, better results, better dogs. I want to take a second to talk about equipment selection for patrol work. One of the most important aspects of teaching and maintaining patrol functions is your equipment. Proper equipment selection and fit makes all the difference in the world when it comes to creating and maintaining patrol and sport dogs. This episode is possible in part with support from Arno at ALM Suits. Because of the importance of this equipment, I use ALM Suits exclusively. I've owned one for about five years and use it almost daily at the kennel and have caught thousands of dogs and tens of thousands of bites. Arno was able to make a great fitting suit for my lanky ass and I couldn't be happier with it. Arno can take your measurements and make you a suit each and everything he does in his shop in Vegas. Between the top-notch materials and the handmade aspect, you're getting some of the best bite equipment in the world from ALM. The suits come in a full range of weights, from training weight to comp weight, which is what I use because I'm not a pussy and you shouldn't be either. He offers some Cavalier inserts to make the thinner suits a little safer and more comfortable, plus they keep your tattoo artist happy. He makes a full range of toys and reward tugs also. Be sure to hit him up at alnk9equipment.com That's the letter K, the number 9, or Arno, A-R-N-O at almsuits.com Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off 
off your first order. Tell him you heard it here. Now go get bit. All right, everybody. We are back. Working Dog Radio broadcasting the bite. I am Ted Summers in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And with me from a snowy Canton, Ohio, as always, is Eric. Eric, what's up? Uh, freezing. Um, <laughs> got dumped on pretty good last night. It's 18 degrees. You know, um, it's funny to see because, you know, I live on a lake and the lake isn't frozen uh, yet. Usually it takes into February. But it, so it's really super pretty. And it's hard to remember that I hate the winter when you see how pretty it is. But uh, stand outside breaking dogs that take forever to go piss. You're like, gosh, man, you're killing me. And now I know why, why I hate it. But uh, <laughs> other than that, this is um, third episode we've recorded this week. So nothing has changed yeah. much. I still have a few police dogs. I'm trying to get this dog to Aruba, man. That's $3,400 to ship to Aruba. Really? Yeah, um, because they only will ship, uh, I think it's American, and they only ship out of Miami. So the company would have to drive the dog to Miami and then throw him on the plane. So it's, it's ridiculous. So we're probably going to get the handler to come up here and then fly the dog back for, what, $200 as baggage. Yeah, something um, like that. Chachi's bringing us uh, those two dogs from California next week. For, oh, sweet. Yeah, it was going to cost us $2,200 to have him flown in to Dallas So uh, from L.A. Yeah, so crazy. I was like, good Lord. And Chachi was like, I'll do it for half that. I'm like, all right, fine. So <laughs> bring me the yeah, dogs, enough's man. enough with this. I yeah. mean, come on. I mean, I get I get prices can go up, I guess, but fuel so low now that it's ridiculous what they're charging for the shipping. You I know? agree. I blame United Airlines for killing a couple <laughs> dogs, man. They, they yeah. panicked everybody. How, why is that our fault that we're paying more because you killed dogs? I, I don't get it. I, I think they're just trying to talk you out of it. So you know? I, Yes. I, they don't really want to do it. It's kind of one of those, well, if we charge enough, nobody will want to do it, and then we don't have to mess with it anymore. It's kind of like, yeah. This is, so uh, I guess this is our anniversary episode also. By the time this airs, this will be our 43 or 2 episode number-wise, but this is... Uh, uh, our anniversary year date episode when this one airs. So it'll be kind of cool. Um, in that year, uh, we should close in on 200,000 downloads. Um, and that number continues. We're averaging about five to 700 a day per episode. So everybody listening, thank you. Keep listening. And uh, we're stoked to have everybody here. So we'll continue to gain more. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Ted underscore Summers. You can find the Quartzlight K9, letter K number nine, on Instagram as well. Um, and then you can find the show's Instagram, working underscore dog underscore radio. Eric, where are you? I'm at uh, Van S K9, V A N E S S K9 on Instagram. That's, that's where I do a lot of the police stuff. And then the uh, Facebook page, Van S K9 Academy is where I, I do a lot for the pet side of the business there. A little bit of everything, but if, if you're here because you like the police dog stuff, check it out, Van S K9 on Instagram. We, Ted and I have talked about this before. We found out that a ton of our followers on Working Dog Radio don't follow either of us on our personal stuff, so trying to get you... I'm at, dude, I've been sitting at 17.2 thousand followers on Instagram for a long time. I gotta... <laughs> I gotta get that eighteen grand, man. I can't. I don't even know what I'm like three thousand or something. I'm yeah, my OCD can't stand. I got <laughs> the decimal point. <laughs> right. Oh right. man. All right. So this, uh, our guest today is, you know, this is Working Dog Radio, and we're going to talk about in the beginning of this episode some Working Dog stuff, and then we're going to get into the meat of this, but. This is an out of the ordinary, different interview for us, and I, I'm super stoked about this. It, it's funny because 
our guest was in law enforcement at the highest levels and pretty much a celebrity at one point, which is a weird philosophy amongst, you know, civil servants that, that because of the nature of, of today and the way things are and, and the high profile jobs, how, how a person in law enforcement while they're at work can actually be a kind of a famous and maybe even a target. So our guest, without further ado, um, started his law enforcement career, I believe in New Jersey and moved across the river and then eventually rose all the way up to the ranks as the 40th commissioner of NYPD and the man in charge uh, during 9-11. He's an author, just wrote a book, uh, From Jailer to Jailed, Federal Inmate 84888.054, from badge number one to that number. And we're going to get into everything from his rise up through the ranks and and then what he's got going on now with prison reform. Uh, we want to welcome Bernard Carrick. Uh, Mr. Carrick, how are you? I'm good, guys. Thank you. Yeah, we're super Thanks for coming on. on. For sure. That's okay. So let's, before we get into uh, all the uh, stuff that people know you from, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about like where you grew up and then the military stuff. Well, listen, I came up uh, in life, uh, I guess, uh, from some pretty humble beginnings. I was born in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I was abandoned by my mother when I was three. Uh, she was beaten to death and murdered when I was nine. Um, I went to Eastside High School in Patterson, New Jersey. And if you guys, uh, if you guys have ever seen the movie Lean on Me with Joe Clark, mm-hmm. uh, the infamous Eastside, uh, you know, it wasn't really a learning institution. It was more where you had to survive to get through the day. Uh, that's where I went to high school. I dropped out in the 11th grade. Um, and about a year and a half later, two years later, I went into service. So I think, I think between uh, my my early years in high school, uh, I got involved in the martial arts at 13. I got my black belt at 16, and this is back in 1972 before anybody really paid attention to what the martial arts was. Um, I got my black belt, then I went into service the next year, and um, I think between the martial arts and the U.S. Army, um, that was the beginning of my career. That was where I found my niche of what I wanted to do. Uh, I went in the service uh, in the Army as a military police officer. Uh, I went to dog school uh, in Korea. I had a sentry dog uh, in Korea, got involved with the working dogs, got the, you know, learned how to train. And then my career took off. Uh, so that was sort of the beginning. Did you, um, so a sentry dog was just for bite? Or did you ever do any kind of detection stuff while you were over there? I know this is pretty early on, but I know they were still doing nose work back then. Yeah, back then, uh, honestly, nose work was just starting. You know, we primarily in the service at that time, um, it was coming out of the Vietnam War and uh, primarily... They used the dogs for tracking and sentry work. Basically, your dog was an attack dog. That's all he was. You were guarding a perimeter. In my case, uh, I was actually assigned to a nuclear missile site in uh, South Korea. And uh, you went out six hours a night. You patrolled that area. And uh, you were looking for intruders into the area. So uh, they were just getting into patrol work where they were taking dogs out on patrol. But my dog specifically was a sentry dog dog and that was just patrol and attack and uh that's what i focused on when i was there was he a german shepherd it was a german shepherd uh a great dog uh king uh <laughs> and i you know it's funny you remember certain things in your career y102 um the king y102 that was his uh in his ear his uh his uh marker in his ear to 
tattooed in his ear was the number Y102, and I, for some reason, I never forgot that. That's funny. Uh, a big, giant German shepherd named King. They, they really went out on a limb there with that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is my dog, Rex. So back then, uh, were you doing decoy work, too, for each other? You, how'd you guys do it? Well, we um, we trained internally. First, I went to dog school down in South Korea, southern end of Korea. Came back up north to the missile site. But we, it was uh, the dog handlers had a pretty pretty good gig at the time. We lived by ourselves uh, in our own uh, sort of little camp because somebody had to take care of the dogs. And um, we took turns handling the kennels. Um, we did in-service work uh, three days a week. You know, it was a, uh, for, for guys in the military at the time, especially in Korea, you know, we didn't really have a boss. You know, you had, you had supervisors, MP supervisors. They didn't know shit about dogs. So, you know, we, we tell them anything. Oh, we, we we need we can't go to that detail today because we have in-service training. Or we can't go to that detail because the dog's got to go to the vet. Nobody knew the better, so we uh, we sort of stayed to ourselves, um, had our own thing going, and uh, and it was a nice gig. We um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about dogs. I, uh, I had a good time my my 13 months there. Sounds like it. Did you ever get to bite anybody? Uh, yeah, hmm. actually, um, I did, you know, my, uh, my dog, uh, got loose and grabbed a Korean, um, a, <laughs> what they call a Katusa. Um, they're U.S. uh, augmented Koreans that, you know, they, they work within the U.S. military bases. And, uh, we had a guy that got up within the perimeter site that was not supposed to be there. Uh, the dog was loose and grabbed him, uh, not too much damage. I got him off of him pretty quickly quick but um that, that was the only time we had a we really had an issue now most guys myself and ted included in canine almost all everyone i know has scars from getting bit by their own <laughs> dogs or one of the others do you have any any of those oh no listen i listen i got plenty and, and it, hmm. you know my plenty didn't come from that dog uh my dog it came from other dogs that we were working with at the time we had a uh and I, I'm trying to, I can't remember his name, but we had a massive black shepherd um, that came out of Vermont. And when we looked up his paperwork, you know, they, 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 he was a found dog in the mountains of Vermont. And I swear he was part wolf, this thing. He was just about <laughs> solid black. And he was, he was like a demon. He, he howled when he grabbed onto a sleeve and he, you know, his sort of eyes turned red and I, I used to think, geez, this, this dog is some kind of like a demon, like he's a devil or something. He was a nasty, nasty dog. And you know, back then, the sleeves we used were the old Ray Allen sleeves. And at the bottom of the sleeve, it was it was opened and it only had a leather pouch that you grabbed onto. And this dog came in, grabbed the sleeve at the you know midpoint, but then let go and grabbed the bottom. And his canines went through that leather, that leather pouch and stuck into the side of my hand. You talk about some electricity flowing through your body. It was, um, you know, you guys have been there, you know, but, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty painful. And then throughout my, throughout the rest of my career um, and throughout my life, really, I never worked in canine uh, in, in the police field. And I was, you know, I was doing this stuff for 30 years, but I've always had dogs. Up until three years ago, four years ago, I had two German shepherds 
Shepherds, uh, German imports, um, great dogs, highly, highly trained. Uh, they pretty much patrolled my, my property, my house where I live in New Jersey. Um, and before that, uh, when I lived in North Carolina, I, I don't know, I had probably had six or seven different dogs, Shepherds, Dobermans. And um, I've always had dogs. So I've got bumps and scars and pricks and, you know, I, I got pretty beat up at times, but uh, it was all a lot of fun at the time. Oh yeah, of course. Working and playing with dogs, right? Yep, that's uh, it. Nothing better. So we get out of the we get out of the army, and I think you went to work for the IRS for a little while, if I remember right. Well, I, I went to work for a federal task force at the time. It was only about ten months. Um, it was based out of Indiana, and they were doing uh, illegal cigarettes. They were investigating illegal cigarette transportation out of out of North Carolina into a seven or eight state jurisdiction. But I was I was there for about ten months, and then. I was offered a job in Saudi Arabia. Um, and ironically, the initial job I was offered, uh, it was by a, uh, I was working as a contractor for a large US-based firm that was building the King Khalid military city project in Saudi. My initial job offering was to head up the canine unit for security that would patrol the perimeter of this city. And I took the job. And I went over to Saudi Arabia. And this is this is back when nobody knew what the hell Saudi Arabia was. I remember I went home and told my father, you know, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. He's sitting at the dining room table and he looks at me and he says, Arabia. He goes, you know, I, I saw a movie one time, Lawrence of Arabia. He said, I think it's hot there. And that was about as much <laughs> as anybody knew about the Middle East or, or Saudi. And um, I go over to Saudi. Um, I get assigned to the security division for this uh, this team. And we start putting plans together to bring in 12 dogs and, you know, have layouts for a massive kennel, uh, training facility, all this stuff. And uh, then we had to give a briefing to the Saudi government. And we go into the briefing. And we're talking about what, where we're at and what the process is and what we're in the process of doing. And when we get to the dog part, when we get to the canine part of security, all these Saudis that are in the room from the Ministry of Interior, they're all looking at me like they're not understanding what I'm talking about. And finally, we see, you know, dogs, like earth, earth dogs. And when it hit them, what we were talking about, they all basically looked at each other, they looked at us and said, oh no, 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 no dogs. You cannot have dogs because in, in the Middle East, to them at the time, dogs were like demons. Dogs were, you know, they wanted nothing to do with dogs. The only dogs they really knew of were the Salukis and the, the, the desert dogs. That's that's about all they knew. Uh, they wanted nothing to do with a canine unit, security. They don't, wanted nothing to do with it. So we had to scrap the entire, we had to scrap the entire thing. And I wound up staying there uh, in the security field for about two and a half years. And uh, came back to the U.S. I uh, joined the sheriff's department down in New Jersey, Cumberland County, and um, I was there for about a year, year and a half. Then I moved back up to New Jersey. Was in the sheriff's department there for about a year, and then I took off and went back to Saudi Arabia again for about a year and a half, where I was the acting chief of investigations for the Royal Families Hospital, and uh, 
I was there for about a year and a half, almost two years. And then came back to Jersey and uh, went back to the sheriff's department for about uh, another two years before I actually went to the NYPD. So when you went back to Passaic County, uh, New Jersey, that's where you started getting into the correction side of stuff, too? Yeah, that was uh, that was my first dealings with correction. I um, when I was in North Carolina in the sheriff's department, I was on patrol, and then I went to narcotics. When I came to New Jersey, the only position available at the time was a correction officer in the Passaic County Jail, which was in Patterson. It was a pretty rough town, big jail, a big county jail. And I started working as a CO there within, I don't know, six months or so. It was pretty fast. I wound up getting assigned to training. I had, I had done a lot of training work in uh, abroad. Uh, I had been to Italy. I went to the, uh, the Italian government's uh, Vignette Counterterrorism School when I was working in Saudi. Uh, did a bunch of crazy stuff. And uh, so when I got to Passaic County, I pretty much uh, got into training, was a training officer, supervisor, uh, helped them start the SWAT team at the time. Then I took off, like I said, and went back to Saudi. I uh, came back in about, uh, about a year and a half and uh, came back to the job I left. And over the next year or so, I was appointed as the Passaic County Warden in charge of the Passaic County Jail. So I had, I don't know, I had about 1,100 inmates under my command. I had uh, probably 250 staff members. And I ran the Passaic County Jail. But you know what, guys? I always wanted, you know, since my days working as an MP, I always thought about joining the New York City Police Department. And that's where I wanted to go. So I took the test. I passed the test, started processing. And in July of 1986, I'm the warden of the Passaic County Jail. I'm wearing a white shirt, stars, a gold shield. I have a car. I have all the perks that come with an executive job like that. And uh, I was only 30, 31 years old at the time. But my investigator from the NYPD called and he said, listen, I personally think you're insane to leave what you have to become a rookie cop in New York City. But if you're going to do it, you got to do it now. Because of my age, I was going over the age limit with my military time. And if, uh, if I passed it up, it would have been over. I wouldn't have been able to go. So I, in January, January 15th, 1986, I, uh, I gave up my gold shield stars, car, and everything else. And uh, I went to New York City, went to Brooklyn, got sworn in as a New York City cop. And that's where my time with the NYPD started. So the Passaic County Jail in the in the 80s there, was that, uh, was that like gladiator school back then? <laughs> For, for the guards yeah, and for everybody it, else? It was. It was a, it was a rough place, um, you know, and it was, you know, it was in Patterson. So there's Patterson's then and now is still one of the roughest cities uh, in New Jersey. And it was, you know, uh, it was a time where it was uh, going to work was dangerous. Uh, look, correction's dangerous in itself, uh, period. Um, you know, you're going, you have guys going into 
the dormitories with 25, 50, 75 to 100 inmates, depending on the classification. And you get in there, you don't have any weapons. You don't have a nightstick. You don't have mace. You don't have a, a, a gun or any other weapon for that matter. Uh, you get into these dormitories and if they, they turn against you, you have problems. So back in those days, it was rough. Um, I was the commander of the emergency response team and uh, I'd say, you know, there were probably four, five, six times a month that we had to come in and, and you know, break up major fights that were leading to riots or, you know, sucks officers out of dormitories uh, that got into scraps and couldn't get out. Uh, it was a bad time. Do they have any dogs assigned there at all by any chance? They did not when we started. Um, and we were some of the first ones uh, to send our guys to dog school. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think we were sending guys down to Philly at the time. I think we were sending our guys uh, down to Philly uh, to get trained. Uh, we started out, we had two dogs, then we had four. I think when I left, we probably had six or eight dogs. And listen, inside a correctional facility, dogs work wonders. They don't have to do much because <laughs> the inmate do not like dogs. You know, they don't want nothing to do with that. So, you know, the mere patrolling with a dog uh, is usually all it takes. Once in a while, uh, you know, you get somebody crazy in a, in a in a dorm that you can't get out, or whatever the case may be. Uh, you gotta you gotta get the dog in there. But uh, for the most part, just the patrolling in general, it suffices to uh, to keep the inmates at bay. Yeah, so we, it's there's not a lot around in my area either. There, there's a few, you know, there's some sheriff's offices that have dogs. They call them in off the road, but a yeah. jail specific dog. Um, I, I try to push sheriffs in that on all the time, man. It's a it is a great great tool. It's a great tool. It, listen, it's a tool if you need it. But it's also a, a major, major deterrent. There's two things, and, and listen, I, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, you know, I ran the NYPD, uh, you know, the largest police department in the nation, but I also ran the largest jail system in the country, Rikers Island, when we had 133,000 prisoners a year coming into the system. I can tell you there's two things that inmates do not want to mess with. One is dogs, two is electricity. Um, they don't like tasers. They don't like, you know, uh, electronic stun shields. You know, as, once they've been hit with a taser or a stun shield, it, there's probably a 99% chance you'll never have an issue with that guy again unless they're a complete, you know, unless they, they have mental issues and they shouldn't really be in jail in the first place. We, you know, personally, I think we put way too many people with, you know, mental problems in prison where they should be getting treatment somewhere else. But uh, I'd say 99% of the time, these guys have been hit with a taser or an electronic stun shield or a stun belt or whatever the case may be. You're not going to have an issue from them again. So the electricity and the dog are two things that they try to stay away from. <laughs> so uh, talk about your first assignment uh, in uh, Times Square and like, how do they make the determination on where you guys go? <laughs> Well, look, you know, it's this is, uh, you know, to other departments uh, outside of New York City, they, you know, even in New Jersey, where they have some larger departments, my son is a detective in Newark, New Jersey, they got about 1, 1,100 guys on the job, uh, Jersey City's got about 2,000. New York City, we had 50, I think I had 55,000 under my command, 41,000 of those are uniformed cops. 
Um, so when your orders come out, when you go to the academy, I don't know what your academy was like, uh, you guys, mine, we started out at 2,600 recruits, 2,600. Damn. Right. And we graduated, I think in my class, we graduated 2,250. So out of that 2,250, when your orders come out, it comes out on a teletype, just like the military. It's exactly like the military. It's, and the teletype is about, you know, 11 feet long. And, you know, you got 2,200 guys on the orders. My first command out of the academy was Brooklyn. I went to Brooklyn to uh, uh, the 14th Division, which is a 7-9 precinct. Really, at the time especially, is 1986. Bad, bad place. One of the highest crime-rated communities in the country. Uh, Bed-Stuy, uh, you know, East New York. These were, these were crack havens, major murder problems, violence problems. So I went there for my training for six months. And then I got transferred to Midtown, Times Square, uh, the Midtown South Precinct, which actually covers Times Square. And my my first job, my first uh, assignment was having a foot post on West 42nd Street. Now, if you've ever been to Times Square, the heart of Times Square is 42nd and 7th Avenue. I had a foot post on 42nd between 7th and 8th Avenue, one block, one block. And on that one block, round the clock, 24 hours a day, you had between six and eight cops, three or four on one side, three or four on the other side. You had two sergeants and a lieutenant on a block. And That's crazy. That was and making post. felony arrests and all that stuff every day Jeez. in one block radius. Listen, one, listen I, you know, I used to tell people for eight hours a day, you ran from one end of that block to the other. Man with a gun, robbery in progress. You know, shots fired. Somebody threw somebody under a train. Somebody jumped off a building. A woman getting accosted or raped in one of the theaters. Every day, all day long, it went. That's what you we ran to. So if if you like action, if you liked being a cop, if you like that kind of job, there was no better place to work than Times Square in the eighties. Um, this was the height of the crack epidemic. This is pre-Rudy Giuliani. Um, it was an insane time for the city. I think in 1990, we had 2,470 homicides. Jesus. Like that, that makes shit. Chicago look mild. It was completely insane. Um, and so I, that's where I started my, my time with the NYPD. The crazy thing for me is, so um, I've, and I've, this has always boggled my mind, is I, I worked at a department. We had anywhere between 170 and 200 guys. So not a big place. But around here, we're the largest agency. You know, it was a pretty good size. It, it's hard for me to fathom working at a place where you could work your whole career and there's guys that work their whole career the same time you do and you've never meet them, let alone know who they are. Never meet them. Um, no, you would, I, listen, most likely, think. you know, no, yeah, there's, there's plenty of that. I mean, the only time that you, uh, forget about in your, forget about other commands, like outside of other commands, you could be in Midtown South, in Manhattan South, 
which is the, let me see, there's probably 10 precincts, 12 precincts in Manhattan. Um, you could be in Manhattan your whole career and still not know cops that's in Manhattan. You would, Unless you saw him at court <laughs> or unless you saw him on a detail, you know, there, here, I'll give you an idea. Now, your department, you said how many? Was it 100, 150? About 180, yeah. Okay. You have 76 different police stations in New York City, 76 <laughs> commands. And then that doesn't count the detective bureaus. It doesn't count the transit division. It doesn't count the housing. 76 individual police stations that has anywhere from, you know, 60, 80, 90 guys to, you know, Midtown South has 400. So wow. it's it's pretty spread out. Um, and, uh, you know, you can go your whole career without, without knowing anybody. I meet, I meet guys today. And listen, I was an aggressive, active cop. I spent my time on patrol in, in Midtown South. I went, I was an anti-crime in plain clothes there. I then went to narcotics. When I went to narcotics, I was up in, I got transferred to Manhattan North, which was Harlem, Spanish Harlem and Washington Heights. Uh, I was in narcotics for two and a half years, went to major case, then went to DEA, the DEA task force. And all that time in that uh, eight, nine years, there's tons of cops that were in the same borough I was in. I never even met, never met, never knew get notes from today. You know, I worked, you know, I worked in Midtown North. That's the next precinct. That's a precinct to joining the one I worked in. You just wouldn't know them. Wow. Yeah. That, I, I'll, <laughs> every time throughout my career, people are like, Hey, I know so-and-so. Do you know him the, at my department? I go, and I would say the same thing. We're not in New York. Yes, I know him. I, you know, I, I might not be friends with him, but I know the guy. So that, you know, you know, it's funny guys. This is pretty funny too. Cause I'll get people, I'll have people, you know, I'll be traveling somewhere and somebody will say, Hey, do you know Joe Smith? He's in the NYPD. He worked for you. I said, no, not really. And they look at me like I'm nuts. Like, hmm. and they'll say, you know, yeah, but he worked for you. Uh, yeah, I know. But, right. you know, I, I just don't know, him, you know. I know people that were, they were in my office, you know, or they were in my command, uh, they were on my squad. But outside of that, it's a big, big place to work. So, so you're going along in your career and you're get, doing all that, the DEA, all the different things. And at some point you get appointed over to the Department of Corrections for the investigative division. How, how does that come about? Do you, is that a, a job you applied for? Is that something they came no. to you or how'd that work out? No, in 1992, uh, I was in DEA. I was uh, in the DEA task force. Um, I had a great job. It's for me. And when people asked me what was one of the best jobs I ever had, that job in the task force was one of the best because it's it's a task force that consists of New York City detectives, state police detectives, and DEA agents. And I had one of the most substantial drug investigations in the history of the office at the time. We did. Um, we did a, uh, a case that started in this, on the streets of New York City. We wound up in Guatemala, Costa Rica, Brazil, Ecuador, and Colombia. Um, seized 10 tons of cocaine uh, over two years. Um, locked up a bunch of really bad guys. Seized about $60 million. And uh, for me, that was a great job. But during that time, while I was there... 
Rudy Giuliani was running for mayor. And I met him at a dinner uh, for the Honor Legion and, uh, and another dinner for the uh, the Busick Foundation, a cop that was killed in the line of duty. I got to know him and, um, you know, I started working, volunteering with his campaign, uh, overseeing uh, the security guys on his campaign. And then in 1994, he became mayor. He got elected. And um, and he was a friend. I knew him. Uh, I knew him pretty well. He knew about me working in the Passaic County Jail in New Jersey. And immediately after he became mayor, there was a major riot at Rikers Island. And he decided he's going to change the commissioner. He's bringing in new people. And uh, one day he called me up and he said, listen, I want you to go to Rikers as the executive assistant and chief of staff um, um, for the commissioner. And we agreed that I would do this for six months. I'm not really sure what happened, but uh, I didn't leave for six years. Uh, You know, I started out. uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. I started out uh, and I started out actually in the investigations division. I was there two months, uh, became the executive assistant chief of staff for the commissioner. And about six months later, the mayor changed the executive staff again. And this time when he did, he brought in a new commissioner and I got called to Gracie Mansion and uh, he said, listen, you're going to take over as the number two guy in charge. And um, I went from the chief of staff to the first deputy commissioner, the number two guy in the agency. I did that for about two years and uh, the commissioner retired, uh, was there and, uh, and I took the job. So uh, I was there from 1994 to 2000. And when I started on that job, we averaged 150 stabbings and slashings per month. Uh, we had 133,000 in inmate admissions per year. Uh, we're the most violent of any jail system in the country. And over that six-year period that I was there, I think we dropped it down by 93%, dropped overtime spending by about 40, assaults on staff by 30. We created a bunch of efficiencies uh, under the mayor that was unparalleled and historic, not only in New York City, but around the country. And then in uh, in August of 2000, um, my career was moving right along. I was doing fine. And at 11 o'clock uh, on August 18th, I think, of 2000, 11 p.m., I get a call from the mayor. The next morning, I was going to be appointed as New York City's 40th police commissioner. So uh, I went from having the biggest job in, in jailing in the country to taking over the largest police department in the, in the nation. So we'll get into uh, more of the um, stuff, the philosophies and everything uh, about the the jail and prison system uh, when we start really getting into your book. But when you were there at Rikers, um, what what was your kind of style? Um, I, I, I read some of your book that you had that uh, that show them who's boss kind of oppressive type mentality. And, and well, listen, here's here's here was you know on on management. My management style is really pretty simplistic. Um, when you manage people, you have to be firm, uh, but you have to be fair. Um, don't ask anybody to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself. 
um, you know, I had been a correctional, so I knew the job and I know it pretty well. Um, and, uh, you know, your people have to be held accountable to do the jobs they're sworn to do. On the other end of this, um, inmates have to be held accountable for their actions. Jails and prisons cannot be a an empire or a, a haven, let's say, for criminal conduct. We had guys, uh, you know, stabbing, slashing other inmates, staff. We had them, you know, guys would go to sleep and they'd stick toilet paper between their, their toes and under their body and they'd light them on fire while they're sleeping. You know, they'd stand there in a uh, punitive segregation cell, shit in their hand, smear it all over their body, and then tell you to come and get them. Um, officer cracked a gate to go in and take an inmate out, and uh, the inmate would throw a cup of urine in his face. This is the kind of stuff that you have to deal with in that arena, and every one of these things that I just mentioned should be a crime. It's not It's not something you should be allowed to do, and prior to me getting to the New York City jail system, nobody was prosecuted for criminal conduct. Um, you just about had to murder someone to wind up with criminal charges. So when I came in, I basically said, look, inmates that violate the law while they're inside, they're going to be charged with a crime, assault, throwing feces and urine on somebody, lighting somebody on fire is a crime. If you did it outside an institution, they would lock your ass up. Well, if you do it inside the institution, well, you know, they have the mentality, this is a jail, that's what they do. No, no, we're, we're not doing no. it that way. So I changed. I changed the entire culture, the internal culture of how we responded to inmate-on-inmate violence. And lo and behold, over that six-year period, we dropped inmate violence by about 93%. You know, and you didn't have, a lot of people thought, you know, well, you're gonna have to beat the inmates down to do this. No, you don't. Um, in fact, our inmates, uh, our assaults on staff dropped. Um, inmate, uh, inmate officer confrontations dropped. You know what? It, you create a a level playing field where everybody knows they're going to be held accountable, and you can get stuff done. But if you don't do that, and the other thing is, you know, you have to hold staff accountable. And, and as I I actually talked about this the other day, I forget where I was, but um, you know, I had staff. Uh, I'm I'm not a big proponent of taking um, failure and transferring it somewhere else. Um, if you fail, but you're an executive, if you're a warden or a bureau chief or a borough commander or whatever the case may be, if I have you doing this job in this area and you fail, I'm not going to take you and put you somewhere else and have you fail over there, too. If you reach a certain rank, you're an executive and you can't do the job, then you got to go. I'll get somebody else to bring in to do that job and make sure it's done right. So um, that's sort of the way I manage. That was my management style. It worked extremely well for us, and we had excess successes and achievements that nobody else has ever had. They didn't have it beforehand, and they haven't had it since. So um, I'm pretty pleased with the outcome. You, When you get the call, eventually you take over as the uh, commissioner of NYPD. For those of us, again, from some of the smaller departments, you know, we, we work for most cities have a rank structure. 
and then you have a chief, chief of the whole department. You have, um, you know, maybe captains or majors or whatever that run the bureaus. Some places have assistant chiefs. Um, and then they usually answer to a safety service director type thing and then the mayor. But because of the size of NYPD, you have like a cabinet level position almost in the commissioner's ranks. Is the commissioner still a sworn law enforcement officer there? The commissioner's position in general is a civilian. It's like a, a cabinet position in the, you know, it's like the defense secretary in the, in the uh, you know, in the presidential cabinet. However, in my case, and in some of the other commissioners, I was a cop. So I came up through the ranks, became commissioner, but I still had my police officer status. Uh, I carried a gun. As a matter of fact, if you... you you go on the internet, I'm sure you'll read about it. I think I made, I actually made five or six arrests while I was police commissioner, which nobody's really ever done before. But at the time, I had a very active, you know, my security detail, for example, I, I think there's about 20, 22 of them. Your bodyguards uh, that are with you, you know, they're split up in shifts, but you have four or five bodyguards a day uh, between the guys with you, your advance team, things like that. They're with you around the clock. Um, and then just about every one of them, I hand picked. These were guys that were battle tested. They're guys that I was involved in gun battles with. They're guys that were partnered with people that were shot and killed in the line of duty. And I took them and put them on my details. So when we were out in the streets uh, going from one place to another, there was no way I was going to bypass something going on. And, uh, you know, we interjected ourselves in a a knife fight, uh, locked up a guy wanted for murder there's a bunch of stuff we did but um you know those were the guys i had around me um when i took over the department and like i said i came from a big department i had thirteen thousand people in the department of correction but when you come to the nyp and you you come with the nypd and you take over i had forty-one thousand staff uh uniform staff fourteen thousand civilians and you know you just mentioned your chief and your command staff from my chief of department my uniform chief of department down to captain there were 400 of them so my Holy first command shit. meeting Whoa. yeah my first my first command meeting where i walk in to talk to commanders is an auditorium filled with 400 captains and above um, you know, in the rank, the way the rank structure is, it's captain, deputy inspector, inspector, assistant chief, deputy chief, bureau chief, and chief of department. So, um, you know, it's it's a lot of people. Who was your chief of department? My chief of department was his name was Joe Esposito, um, and ironically, he has the uh, he has the record of being the longest uh, reigning chief of department in the NYPD in its history. I appointed him um, when I took over. He was actually a two star chief in Brooklyn, and I knew him since I was a cop. I had a lot of respect for him. I called him in. I jumped him two ranks. I made him the chief of department, the four star chief. He was my chief. He was um, 
and he was Bloomberg's chief until he actually hit his 63rd birthday and had to retire. So I think he had 12 years as maybe more. He had just about 12 years as chief of department. And today, actually, today he is the commissioner of the mayor's office of emergency management for the city of New York. So he's still in city government. Great guy. This is a guy that he himself, and this is one of the reasons I picked him, a super battle-tested guy. He had two or three gun battles, earned the Medal of Valor, earned the Combat Cross, highly, highly respected by the men and women in the NYPD. And that's what I wanted in, in the chief that I picked. And that's who I picked. Man, so <clears throat> you get the job and you're now the commissioner. And, you know, like I said, like you said, you know, you were known for kind of being out and about a lot because, you know, you were a cop at heart. So during that time, you were out on uh, September 11th and kind of talk about uh, it's a reoccurring theme on this on this podcast. Uh, A lot of guys, especially in the military side, um, the because a lot of them are in their, you know, mid to late 30s, to early 40s. And that happened right around when they would have been in their late teens or early 20s. And, you know, we had Benito Olson on, who was a handler for DevGrew. Um, we had several guys on um, from, from the unit that um, re-enlisted because of it. And um, so kind of talk about that day and then what changed. Okay, so what, what, I, what I'd like to do first uh, before I do that, I, there's something I have to say, and, and, and I think this is a good place to do it. Because of the viewers you have, uh, the listeners you have, the people that pay attention to your show, the people that come on your show. Um, I don't don't get this opportunity often to reach this kind of audience um, to say thank you. Because, uh, and and I'll I'll get into why more in depth in a minute, but the first battleground in this war on terror um, is at Ground Zero in New York City. It's where the World Trade Center once stood. It's where I lost 23 people to work for me, and we lost 37 cops uh, from Port Authority, 343 firefighters, and continue this day, to this day, to lose people as a result of illnesses from from that day. We lost 1,700 civilians, and many of them, um, many of them were never recovered. Um, They vaporized, they incinerated, um, you know, as a result of the attack. And um, it's that hallowed battleground that started the war um, that still goes on today, uh, fighting an enemy that we, we we didn't pay much attention to until September 11th. Um, and many of your listeners uh, were involved. Many of your listeners will still be involved. Um, so on behalf of every member of the New York City Police Department and all first responders that were down there and had to live through it, um, I say thank you to the men and women that came behind us uh, in defense of what we were going through. Um, So with that, uh, you know, uh, on that morning, I was in my office. 
uh, I came in like any other day. Uh, it was going to be a great day. It was uh, the actually it was the uh, election day, um, the primary election day for mayor. I came in early. I worked out. I was exercising in the back of my office. I had a gym back there, and uh, my chief of staff and one of my bodyguards came to the door, beating on the door, my outside door. I was taking a shave, and they said that a plane just hit Tower One. And when I looked up at the TV that was above a treadmill in my office, I could see uh, the damage to the building. Um, I wound up calling the mayor. I told him I would meet him at 7 World Trade, which is directly across the street from Tower 1. And that's where our command center was, the Office of Emergency Management. Uh, I got down there, and um, I was there probably within seven or eight minutes. I was waiting for the mayor. I was standing on the corner of uh, where we actually got the Vesey Street, where the, where the towers were. And there were cops there that were stopping the uh, they were stopping the vehicles. And my driver told them, they said, the PC's in the car. I've got the commissioner with me. And the sergeant came up to my window. I rolled down the window. He saluted me. He says, Commissioner, you can't get onto the block. He goes, people are jumping. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't comprehend what he said immediately. And I got out of the car and I said, what? And he said, they're jumping from the building. They're jumping off the building. And I, I'm watching this debris come down the side of Tower One and then come to the realization it wasn't debris. What I was watching were people that were jumping from the 95th floor and they were landing on Vesey. They were landing between Tower One and Tower Two. They were hitting the awnings um, over the out front of the buildings. And they sounded like explosions uh, when they were hitting the top of those buildings, the top of the awnings. Um, we wound up backing up West Broadway where I was going to wait for the mayor. I called for a temporary command bus to be put on the corner of Barclay and West Broadway in about three minutes before the mayor actually pulled up. The second airliner slammed through the north side of Tower 2, which was directly in front of me. I was 50 yards in front of that building when that big explosion, when you look at that, when you look at that day, you, you watch the visuals from that day, you'll see this big orange fireball blow out the north side of the tower. I'm standing under it. And uh, that stuff came down on me. Um, the bodyguards I was with, my staff, some of the mayor's staff, a piece, a shaft, a, a piece of the wheel shaft from the plane actually hit one of my bodyguards as we were running up West Broadway. And um, it was at that point that I heard I heard the helicopter pilots, my guys in aviation, yelling that a second airplane had just hit Tower 2. It was at that point that I knew we were under attack. I'm sure you're, when, when that second goes off, there's just your security details doing everything they can to get you out of there. Um, how, the guy that got hit with the uh, wheel shaft, what happened to him? He was fine. It, it hit. Uh, he it hit a, at his, as it was running, and as he was running, um, had we been stationary and that thing hit him in the head, he would have been dead. Uh, any oh, of this yeah. stuff. Keep in mind the building itself. If you remember back when those, you know, when the tower, when it when it all had imploded, these big pillars, these big um, beams were sticking up out of the ground. Well, those were the beams that the towers were made out of. They were seventeen hundred pounds per linear foot. Uh, 
So, you know, this stuff had it come down and hit us, uh, any of us, it would have killed us. And, and it did. It hit many and many people died. But for us, we were far enough away in front of the building. We were able to get behind seven world trade and stay there until all the debris came down that we were saved from that element. But it was, you know, when we realized, look, we had planned response plans for everything under the sun. You know, we constantly trained and planned and practiced and prepared for crises in New York City. And um, as bad as the initial the initial damage to Tower One was, I honestly thought, you know what, we're going to have an issue with the impact area. We're going to have an issue with everything above that, but it'll be fine until the second plane hit and I realized we were under attack. Then it was no longer just a response to a crisis. Um, this has turned into basically a war zone. And, um, you know, my concern at the time was how many more planes are there? Are there other targets in New York City? I called for the evacuation of headquarters, City Hall, the Chrysler Building, uh, the, the uh, Empire State Building, the UN. These were all things going through my mind at the time. What, what other targets could there be? Not to mention they had plans for ground attacks. What about the mass transit system? Are they going to drop sarin gas in the mass transit system? These are all things that was going through my head at the time and that we had to wrap our, our minds around as we went forward. But uh, the response, you know, I, I like to remind people um, this, you know, when they think of 9-11, you have to think of it this in this manner. The first responders of New York City on September 11, 2001, effected the greatest rescue mission in the history of this country. They took 20 to 25,000 people out of those buildings and more than a million people were evacuated out of Manhattan into the four boroughs and into New Jersey with the help of the New Jersey State Police. Nothing like that has ever happened in this country before. Hopefully it never happens in the future, but it was an unparalleled response, rescue, and recovery. Uh, unparalleled. And, and I think that's what they should be remembered for. Being the commissioner, you're right there, right right when it's happening. How hard is it? So there's a ripple effect. You have, you know, everything moving outwards, people fleeing that causes all the issues, like you're saying, into the, into the other boroughs, into New Jersey. There's all these different things now that are happening, how hard is it or is it just overwhelming for you as the commissioner to have to try to deal with that or would you just delegate to other people and you stayed dealing with right in front of you? You know what? It's, uh, you know, your your command in the presence. I mean, you you know, you're right there. Uh, the plans, the protocols, uh, uh, the crisis response plans were intact in place. Uh, the response uh, was really well well done. We had the one thing that was different from just about anything else that ever happened in the city. It was the first time that we had closed the city. I think in the city's history, I called for Operation Omega. That's where basically you shut down the city. Um, if you recall back then, there were big signs at the tunnels and bridges. New York City closed. That's never happened before. The only no. people that were allowed in and out of yeah. southern Manhattan 
were law enforcement and first responders. So we closed down that portion of the city. The Every precinct had to respond, every single precinct, every single cop that was on duty, every fireman on duty, firefighters off duty. They, they were calling in everybody. Uh, correction officers were coming down to the scene. And every city agency had a response capability uh, and, and uh, function. And we just, you know, did what we had to do. Um, I, I, I try to remind people, you know, a lot of people have come up to me and said, you know, for no warning, you know, th- think about it this way. In the aftermath of Katrina, you know, they had, I don't know, they had five days notice. They had seven, six, seven days notice the storm was coming. They had four to five days notice that the levees, in all probability, were going to break and the place had to be evacuated. Um, and it was it was tragic what happened as a result. In New York, I had no warning. I had no warning this was coming. We had nothing to tell us this was on the way. Everything we did was from 846 that morning on. And the way it was handled, the response, the rescue, the recovery, it, uh, you know, and, and I'm not saying this myself, other people, experts, press, um, it was extremely well done. So I couldn't be more proud of the men and women in the fire department, the police department, the Port Authority police, and, and civilians in general. You know, there are so many heroics um, that happen on that day and in the aftermath of that day, um, stories that still have not been told, but there's a lot, of, a lot to be proud of. I can imagine it at staff meetings, prior to that when you guys are going over all the operational plans and you're like, yeah, okay, let's visit um, Operation Omega. And they're like, okay, Uh, that's never (laughs) happened. Listen, guys, that's a really good point because I'll tell you, and this is true. It's kind of funny. It's true. I used to constantly complain at bitch when I was the correction commissioner because the mayor would have these every month he would have a um, a mock drill or a tabletop exercise or you know they, you know they call us and they on a Saturday morning when I'm looking to hang out with my wife and his baby um, you know they call up and say the mayor just activated the emergency command center and um, they're doing a drill for a uh, you know sarin gas in the subway and I'm like dude I I have nothing to do with the subway. Like, I, I got nothing to do with that. I run jails. I got 16 jails. I have nothing to do with the subway. Doesn't make any difference. Every city agency's got to go. Everybody's got to partake. Everybody's got to be involved. There's a piece of work for every city agency. We did that for three and a half years, for even more than that. From, 19, from 1996 to 2000, we did that almost every month. We did these mock drills and tabletop exercises. But I'm going to tell you something. Ever since then, the one thing I promote to every county, every state agency in the country, you can't practice, plan, and prepare enough. You can't. You just can't. And in a post-9-11 world, you have to be a complete moron not to have learned that from 9-11. So, you know, I constantly stress that. And, and that's what we did, and that's why it works so well. You wouldn't think that that <laughs> would ever come to it, but it, that's good. You're right. Yep. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a break now, insert some uh, commercials in here. Uh, we got to keep these uh, thing on the air, and we get back. We're going to move on past 9-11, and we'll talk, we'll talk post-9-11 and get into uh, uh, Bernard Carrick, the author. Eric here. Like many trainers, Ted and I go through toys with the hard, super-chewer dogs we typically have in our kennel. So we need toys 
toys designed to withstand the grueling reality of high-drive working dogs. That's where USA Canine Dog Toys excel. Their toys are made from an extremely durable rubber compound. They have reward toys as well as food dispenser toys, all made to last and are very affordable. All the toys are military-themed. Go to the website, www.usa-canine.com. Check out the grenade-shaped toys. They got the cherry bomb. They got a lot of other great things over there, military-themed toys. Here's the best part. A portion of all USA Canine proceeds go to support military working dogs and other veterans organizations. And that's freaking badass. www.usa-canine.com. Use the promo code K. 9 Pro or check them out on Instagram at USA Canine Dog Toys. Hey everybody, it's Ted. Let's talk about training and conferences. We know training budgets are always tight and that's why the crew from Hits goes the extra mile for you. Let's be honest here. There's no other canine training conference on the planet like Hits. It has now gotten so large that the 2019 Hits will be held at the largest convention center in North America. That's Chicago's McCormick Place. Experience matters when it comes to putting on a show like this and when it comes to police dog trainers. The guys who run Hits are still working police dogs just like you. There's going to be three full days of training with five classes classes in session at a time. Toppers are going to range from patrol work and dog selection to case law to search and rescue to canine first aid and everything in between. They had 1,100 people in attendance last year in D.C. and are planning for more this year. And it wouldn't be a conference without the vendors. The McCormick Place has enough room for 100 vendor booths. You can meet the people that make the equipment you guys use every single day. The vendors make coming to hits an experience like nothing else in this industry, plus the free stuff. Everybody loves free stuff. Last year, they gave about 40 grand in cash and prizes from vendors. I expect Chicago to be bigger. So come join the crew from Working Dog Radio in Chicago during the week of August 13th through the 16th at McCormick Place in Chicago, Illinois. Now, I know handlers and I know you people wait to the last minute to do everything. Don't be that guy. Head over to hitsk9.net. That's the letter K, the number nine, to get registered and save money on your registration for doing it early. There's also information about the discounted hotel rooms. That's August 13th through the 16th in Chicago. If you didn't write it down, we got the link in the show notes. Hey guys, Eric here. If you listen to Working Dog Radio or follow me on social media, Van SK9, you know that I am involved in a wide variety of aspects of the dog world. I am a police dog trainer, pet dog trainer, I own dog daycare, and I am a pet owner. So I have a wide variety of needs when it comes to gear for the dogs, daily living things for the dogs, all kinds of items, training, anything possible I need. I go to one place, rayallen.com. Rayallen.com is a one-stop shop for everything dog related. Anything you could possibly need, check them out. rayallen.com. They've been doing a long time. Great customer service, super high integrity at that place. rayallen.com. Put in promo code Working Dog Radio for 10% off your next order. Ted and I love that place. RayAllen.com. Get on there. Click everything you need. Ship it all at once. RayAllen.com for all things dogs. Hey, everybody. It's Ted. Let's take a break for a second. Let's talk about Dogtra. We make no bones about the fact that Eric and I love Dogtra. In fact, we've been users of them since long before we even started the podcast, and it's one of the reasons that we approached them to be sponsors of the show. We typically only want to have stuff on here that we actually use and that we can stand behind and endorse. Dogtra is one of those companies. They've been at it for a long time and are industry leaders when it comes to production of reliable, consistent training equipment for your dog, whether be 
be poppers and droppers, whether it be e-collars or now they've got the new GPS one, which Eric has been playing with and he really, really likes it. So what I want everyone to do is head to dogtra.com. You get a 10% off of any item over $200 and you use the discount code WDR10. That's just like the initials of the show, Working Dog Radio, WDR10. Hit them up. Highland Canine Training LLC. To all of my fellow LE Canine guys, Highland Canine should definitely be on your short list of vendors when it comes time to adding to your unit or replacing one of your dogs. Highland Canine offers green and pre-trained single and dual purpose dogs if you train in-house. But most importantly, they offer a full service canine academy with canine handlers courses, canine instructors courses, specialized advanced canine training, and canine supervisors courses. Jason and his staff of instructors have been there and done that in this game. They run these classes year-round, so go to their awesome website at www.tacticalpolicecaninetraining.com. That's Tactical Police, the letter K, the number 9, training.com, and make your unit better. Let me take a second and talk to the explosive handlers here. Everybody knows that HME is a huge problem now. The problem with training on it is that it's extremely dangerous, and a lot of times you guys only get access to it a couple of times a year, which is not enough. Nobody wants to handle TATP or HMTD. So, enter TrueScent Canine. That's TrueScent, the letter K, the number 9.com. They manufacture an actual odor, not a pseudo. It's an actual explosive odor suspended in silica. So, they do TATP. HMTD, RDX, TNT, PETN, ammonium nitrate, potassium chlorate, and they do a distractor odor too so that you can proof the dogs off of the training aids, but it's actual explosive odor suspended in silica. It's safe to handle. You're not going to blow yourself up. You're not going to endanger anyone else. And the dogs, through verified testing that TrueScent has done, will alert on both the training aids and then actual HME odor down the line through training. So hit them up. TrueScentCanine.com. That's the letter K, the number nine. TrueScentCanine.com. Okay, we are back, guys, with former NYPD Commissioner Bernard Carrick there at 9-11. was the man in charge of NYPD during 9-11 and for a little while there afterwards. And on a a little bit lighter note, when did you embrace the full bald look, that shaved (laughs) look? (laughs) Uh, uh, You know what? It was was decreasing over time. So uh, uh, I retired. uh, I retired from the NYPD in uh, January 1st, 2002, and I thought my government service was really over until May of 2003. I was asked by President Bush to go back to Iraq, to go to Iraq, actually, and uh, take over the Ministry of Interior and uh, get the interior back on its feet, um, appoint the new minister, the post-Saddam Hussein Minister of Interior, and I was there for about four months, uh, you know, before I did that. And it was during that time that I got tired of, you know, running around trying to get somebody to clip my hair and, you know, get clippers and shave it down. And finally, I went to one of the Iraqi barbers and I said, do me a favor. I said, what's the closest thing you have to my to my scalp? And he, and he did it. And I said, take it all off. Take everything off. <laughs> And uh, and when he first did it, I was like, uh, I don't know if I like this, but uh, you know, so be it. And it's uh, I've been with it ever since. 
<laughs> Very nice. So you go over there. So you go back. I mean, you didn't go to Iraq before, but you went to Saudi Arabia. And so before you were in law enforcement, had what had changed over there from the time that you were doing security in Saudi Arabia to now the interim interior minister of Iraq under George Bush? Well, look, uh, you know, it, in a in a global perspective, uh, by the time I got to Iraq, um, we in the United States uh, had seen terrorism in in so many so many places. Although we pretty much ignored it, you know, you can you can go back to the '83 bombing uh, of the uh, barracks in Lebanon, uh, the '85 uh, 1985 they threw Leon Klinghoffer and the uh, they, they Jack, the Achille Loro cruise ship. From that point forward, you know, our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, the USS Cole, the Al Kabar Towers, we had seen this stuff or, or realized it was coming um, right up until they bombed the, uh, the World Trade Center the first time in 1993. So, I pretty much had a basic idea, a really good idea of, of what was going on in the Middle East and, and how and why. And I was on the international, uh, I was on the terrorism committee for the International Association of Chiefs. Um, going to Iraq was a bit different. One, it was still a war zone. But we went into Iraq, uh, got into Baghdad, I think, on April 19th. And I was actually in country on May 18th. So it was still very much a war zone. It was, uh, it was a strange place to be where... You had so many Iraqis that were glad that we were there, that, you know, wanted the end of Saddam Hussein. Um, They were so fearful of Saddam Hussein, scared to death that he was going to reappear. But you still had a substantial element out there that despised the U.S. and the coalition because they thought we were the oppressors. We were, you know, we were just going to take over like Saddam did. And, um, you know, so there was this constant conflict. I left there. I came back, uh, uh, got out of the air, and four months after the Iraqi minister was appointed, um, went back to my private business with Giuliani. And um, and then in December of 2004, uh, after President Bush was reelected in November, December 2004, I was called by the White House and uh, eventually nominated by President Bush as the second secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So I was, I was nominated to take Tom Ridge's job. So when you think about my my life and my career and where I come from, you know, a high school dropout in Patterson, New Jersey, is now standing in the Oval Office taking the most substantial security position in the country. Um, you know, the Homeland Security has about, or had at the time, about 180,000 employees. It had 22 federal agencies, including the Coast Guard, Secret Service, um, immigration borders, uh, ice, and all that stuff. Um, that would have been my bailiwick, if you will. Uh, I accepted the president's nomination, and a week later, seven days to the day uh, later, I had to tell the president uh, that I had a nanny, a domestic servant that uh, that I had paid cash to over a two-year period, and I had to withdraw my name from consideration. And I did that. So that, that's um, in 2004. Um, that's in December I remember. 2004. 
Yeah, I remember that. I, uh, uh, people know that. I mean, they've heard that. Uh, caught everybody by so, surprise, of course. Yeah. So I uh, I withdrew my name from consideration. Um, I paid the taxes, uh, the penalties, the fines on the nanny and all that stuff, and uh, and sort of went about my business. Um, but in 2006, when Giuliani announced that he was running for president, from that point forward, um, even even behind it, before that. Um, it, it, there was a number of state and federal investigations, uh, both state and federal, where they were looking at my nanny, they were looking at my apartment renovations. They, well, they wound up looking at everything under the sun um, that my my entire prior 10, 15 year life. And in 2009, no, 2007, I was indicted by a federal grand jury. Uh, it was a 16 count indictment, a criminal indictment that charged me with, let's give you an example, six counts on the nanny, two counts that I didn't tell my tax preparer I had a nanny, two counts that I didn't file the the paperwork, I didn't file the tax paperwork on the nanny, and two counts that I didn't pay payroll tax on the nanny. Um, they charged me with a, a bunch of false statements and tax charges um, that they found throughout this investigation. And I was going to trial. I was, I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to fight it. Um, I was going to trial, uh, but I was spending about 100000 a month in legal fees until October of 2009. In October of 2009, my legal bill for the month, for one month, um, was $476,000. Um, yeah, so so when people, when people often ask me, and, and I got into a raging battle, a fight with my brother at the time, you know, why are you giving up? Why don't you fight? Why don't you go forward? Um, you know, my answer to him, and, and I often, tell people this and I wrote this and, and I wrote about this in my book you don't necessarily have the constitutional rights you think you have um, when you're a target of the government unless you have the money to pay for them uh, because you can't fight the US government um, you, unless you're a billionaire or a multi-multi-millionaire um, that battle's close to impossible because you'll run out of money you'll go bankrupt um, and they'll destroy you personally financially professionally uh, by the time you get there. Um, so I, I pled guilty. I basically told my attorneys, you know, tell them I quit. And uh, I pled guilty to eight counts of false statements and tax charges. And I was sentenced to 48 months in federal prison. So part of the, I think, uh, some of the false statement stuff was during the White House, you know, uh, with the White House. Did you ever, like, have a heart-to-heart with George Bush and and say, sorry, dude? Um, or, or have you never spoken to him since? No, I've talked to him. Yeah, I talked to him. We, I talked to him after I withdrew. I talked to him uh, after that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I talked to him numerous times. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I apologize for um, you know being such a pain in the ass. Uh, I guess you can call it. Um, uh, and listen, I, it, here's here's the way I would explain it to people because it's so it gets so complicated. I'm not perfect, and I'm not an angel. Um, 
but I'm not a criminal. Um, you know, did I make mistakes? Yes, I made plenty. There's plenty of things I could have done differently. But there isn't one thing that they charge me with criminally that shouldn't have been handled civilly or ethically. Um, my apartment renovations, they charged me with false statements, tax charges. That had already been dealt with it is in a state court. The state court determined there was no criminal conduct. Um, so the, the bottom line is, and this is why I've become such an advocate on the criminal justice prison reform stuff. We look at people, we charge people with criminal conduct for regulatory violations for ethical violations, for civil violations. You know, I was sent to prison. And, and listen, I put a bunch of people in prison, as I'm sure you guys have as well. The people I put in prison were bad guys, really bad guys that did bad things. And I kind of, I was always under the impression that's what prison was all about. Um, but the bottom line is, I get to prison and I meet commercial fishermen that caught too many fish. I meet a young man that got nine months in federal prison because he sold the whales to on eBay. I met young black kids out of Baltimore and Washington, D.C. that sold dime bags of cocaine, yet were charged in conspiracies with weights of like kilos and given 10 to 15 years. Come on, man. It's just, it's wrong. Shouldn't be happening. Reading your new book, um, you talk, you know, the whole beginning part of it's all about, you know, when you when you had to go and surrender and go to jail and um, actually reading reading those first couple few chapters really, it gives me anxiety because, you know, being a law enforcement officer, I know you were in prison. There were former cops in there. Um, the writing style really gets into, you know, the, the fish out of water type deal and how these people were handling themselves in there, which uh, wasn't good. People were losing their minds. And but like talking about having to talk to your children and tell them, you know, I'm I'm leaving for four years. And then while you're in prison, people outside the prison are, uh, are dying from medical issues. And and uh, a guy, that you know, a detective got killed in the line of duty. And I just feel the frustration or the helplessness in there all the well, while. Listen, here's the reality. This is this is the reality. And it's the only it, I think it's the best best way to explain it and it's 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 hard hitting and it's raw to say but prison going to prison is like dying with your eyes open because you get put into a place where your entire life goes on without you in it and there isn't a damn thing you can do about it you know you mentioned somebody getting killed in the line of duty that was my son's partner he was shot and killed um, my he was one of his best friends I had buried 23 of my own cops uh, I buried more cops than probably any chief in the, in the history of our country and yet when my son had this same issue the only thing I could do was listen on the phone my brother-in-law died in a hospital unexpectedly and my family was tormented and there wasn't a damn thing I could do for them. You know, your children grow. You have deaths in your family. You have births in your family. Your whole life goes on without you in it and your family has to deal with it in a way where they don't have your income. They have nothing. And I can promise you, when you go to prison and that door closes, nobody gives a damn what happens inside those walls. Nobody 
nobody gives a damn what happens to your family except for your closest friends and family. With the exception of that, you're on your own. And listen, I don't have a problem with people going to prison. People that deserve prison, bad guys, people that we have to protect society from, people that we're afraid of. But we put people in prison that we're mad at. We put people in prison because we disagree with their politics. We put people in prison because they broke some regulatory rule or some ethical law. That's not why we should be putting people in prison. We turn them into convicted felons. We pull them out of the workforce for years. Most for life, because once you're a convicted felon, it's a death sentence. You can't get a job. And then everybody in Washington sits around in a big circle jerk trying to figure out why the recidivism rate is so high. Why are these guys going back to prison when they come out of prison? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you put people in prison. It's a training ground for thuggery and criminality. That's what prison is. Oh, yeah. That's what you learn how to do. You learn how to fight, steal, cheat, manipulate, con, gamble. That's what you learn in prison. You don't give them any vocational skills. You teach them no life skills. They don't learn respect and discipline. And you send them home. And for some reason, our congressmen, our legislators, our state legislators, they don't have the common sense to realize that's not really a good thing for the community. So I think the way we're going, you know, and this is this is why I've been fighting this battle. And look, there are plenty of people in the law enforcement that understand this, um, know it now, that didn't know it before as a result of my talking, my getting out there and, and teaching and educating people. You know, I used to have cops, I used to have cops, DEA agents, FBI agents, guys that I know, friends, very good friends, they would come to see me in prison and we'd sit in the visit room and I would point out and I'd say, check this out, see this guy here? He um, He's a fisherman. He's uh, He's been fishing since he was 17 years old. He's a commercial fisherman. He's 55. He's in here because he caught too many fish or he's in here because he he's a lobster fisherman and he caught the wrong tail the wrong size tail fish lobster so he so they took his boat they fired the the, the six people on the boat lost their jobs they took his permits his his license to fish for the rest of his life and he's in here for 18 months and oh yeah by the way his wife's on welfare now because everything's gone and when he gets out guess what he can't get a job he can't get a job because they took the license forever. And the so, guy sitting next to him is a serial killer. And the guy sitting next to him could be, he could be like a, you know, a drug thug that was doing 30 years and is down to his eighth year. You know, I mean, it's so, it's just, it's really insane. If Regulatory issues, ethical issues, and civil issues should be handled just that. Don't turn him into criminal conduct because you, you're you creating a second permanent underclass of American society. Every one of the charges that they charged me with was technically a civil or ethical issue. And I'll give you this. I'll, I, I think I can, can, can explain it in ways that viewers will understand or listeners will understand. My tax issues were probably it was probably 230000 something like that, $250,000 in taxes where they found errors that they claim was a pattern. So I had, I owed $250,000 in taxes, 250 or 300 maybe. Let's say 300. They charged me criminally. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Reverend Al Sharpton has not paid federal taxes on $5 million. He still owes the government. It's still going on for 10 years or whatever the number is. That's a civil issue. Okay. You you explain to me. I, I just don't know how that works. And, and this goes to my last point that I'll make. We have, and we've seen this in Washington. We see it presently today in what's going on at the White House with the president. We've seen it historically. Nobody's really ever paid attention to it until now when you see it, when it's when it's captured with the president and what's going on in Washington today. But the reality is we have turned into a society where the Justice Department has been weaponized against political targets. It's where our legislators use the Justice Department to target their opponents and critics. You know what? We don't live in Russia. We don't live in China. That shit's got to stop. We are politicizing our criminal justice system to a point that it's destroying itself. And and it's not good for this country. And I think the reality is this has been going on for a long time, for the last two decades. Nobody's seen it. Nobody got it. Nobody understood it. And I'll give you you one present day, only because it came up in the last few days. There's a young man. It's a cop. He's charged in, uh, he was charged in Chicago with shooting and killing uh, uh, a kid, uh, a black kid in the street. He was sentenced the other day, I think, to 81 months, 81 months, uh, you know, in federal, in in prison, 81 months in prison for, well, I'll I'll give you a political example. He got 81 months. I don't know. What what is that? That's uh, 12. That's uh, less than less than seven years, eight years. Right. Yeah. Well, guess what? We put Rod Blagojevich, the governor of Illinois. They put him in prison for 14 years for talking about politics on the phone, talking about political fundraisers on the phone. 14 years. They sentenced the guy to 14 years for for politics. The same thing that goes on in Washington every day in this country. There's something wrong. This is there's some major flaws and failures in the system that I think people just don't get until it slaps you in the face. Some of what you talk about in your book too is is conduct and treatment. So if you think about your experience now, what you know now, having been an inmate, if you could, if you went back to when you were running places or working there, what would you have trained differently? in your folks or expressed or ran differently as the head based on your experience now? Well, keep in mind, Rikers is a pretrial facility, so there's not much, you you can't compare Rikers and in a jail system to a prison system. But there is one thing that I would do in training um, that that is not done. And and I know correction administrators and, and judges, especially, they I don't I don't think they'd be too happy with my with my recommendation. Um, but I'll tell you this: if I ran a prison or jail system today, and I had a jail or prison academy where I had to teach correction officers, how to deal with the inmate population. A part of that training would be three days, um, be 72 hours inside solitary confinement. You would have to be in solitary for three days yourself. 
And I promise you, you'll have a completely different perspective on how you deal with inmates that's put in punitive segregation or solitary confinement. Because we use, especially in the federal system, they use solitary confinement for minor institutional infractions, which is completely insane. You take an, in, an apple or an orange out of the cafeteria and have it in your locker, in your cell, and they'll put you in the shoe. They'll put you in the hole for two days. It's wrong. Solitary, there's a purpose for solitary. And the purpose is if you're a threat to an institution, if you're a threat to staff, if you're an escape risk, um, that's, that's a reason to put somebody in solitary. But to put somebody in solitary for institutional infractions and nonsense, that's, that's cruel and unusual punishment beyond anybody, anything you could imagine. Because solitary is mind-altering. I was in solitary for almost three months, and I can tell you it is completely mind-altering. You hallucinate, you talk to yourself, you you know, you know, think it's suicide. Um, there's a whole bunch that runs through your mind. And if you're not a strong person, you come out warped or you kill yourself. So it's, uh, you know, I think that's one thing that I would change um, across the board. And the folks that put you there, they don't care. I mean, right? doesn't well, matter to cares. them if you come out and kill yourself. Doesn't, doesn't, no, it doesn't make any difference. Like I said, once you're in, once you go away, once those doors close, Justice Kennedy uh, from the Supreme Court once said this. He, he gave a speech before the American Bar Association. He said, the unfortunate thing is we have lost our compassion as a society um, for humanity. And once somebody goes into prison, once those doors close, nobody cares what's behind them. And nobody cares about the people that was left on the outside um, uh, with regard to that person. And he could not have been more correct. Uh, that's true. It was true when he said it in 2003, I think. And it's true today. Um, that's reality. And they need to lock some people up and throw away the key. I mean, that's a euphemism for a reason. But... No, absolutely. And listen, I agree. I've said it. You know, I wrote I wrote about that in my book. There are people that need prison um, to learn from their mistakes. There are people that we need to put in prison to protect us from society, uh, protect uh, society from them. And there's some people that have to, they should be in prison for life. I have no problem with that. But if the American public saw what I saw, if they witnessed what I witnessed inside the federal prison system, um, there would be outrage and there would be change um, because they would find it completely insane that we're spending, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with this on the prison topic. Um, there are 30,000 men in minimum security prison camps in the United States today. 30,000. Minimum security prison camp, you know what that is? It's just what I said. It's a camp. There's no fences. There's no locks on the doors. It's basically an honor system. You're there on your own. You're deprived of the freedom of dealing with your family and friends, but you're basically there on your own. It's an honor system. You can get in a car and leave anytime you want. Okay, so here's my question to the legislators that think it's okay to spend $700 million a year on that population. 90%, 70%, 75%, 80% of that, that population has a job or could have a job on the outside. Why not put them on work release? 
Why not put them on a bracelet? Obviously, they're not going nowhere because they're already in a place where they can leave anytime they want. I'd rather have them paying taxes. I'd rather have them putting back into society. I'd rather have them taking care of their kids than depriving the kids of their parents, which is one of the killers of our communities today. People just, they have to have more common sense of what they're doing. And uh, there are people that we need to put in prison for a long time, but there's a lot that's there. They don't need it. They've learned their lesson. When you stand up in court and you're convicted of a felony in this country and you're deprived of civil and constitutional rights, many of which you didn't even know you had, when you're deprived of those rights for a lifetime, for the rest of your life, um, I think that's punishment enough. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of been the, the undercurrent uh, of a lot of stuff. I mean, Oklahoma in general, um, you know, we have the highest incarcerated female population in the country and we have a very high incarceration rate uh, just in general. And Oklahoma is notoriously harsh on um stuff uh oklahoma and kansas both are notoriously harsh when there's minimum sentencing guidelines and stuff like that i mean it's you know i mean there's some stuff where you know they'll put people away for 30 years for having a couple of joints which i mean (laughs) i I, I mean and you know and and that is and there is some stuff and i don't think oklahoma is unique in that sense like they you know there are some things that don't make sense in a lot of states that are punished like you said, some of the stuff, I mean, they're non Well, you know, you know what's, you know what's crazy? Because that's a really good one to talk about right now. You know what's crazy about that? The same legislators that created the laws, these three strikes laws that'll put a guy in prison for 55 years for five bags of marijuana, the same guys that created that laws are the same guys that's trying to legalize marijuana today. They're the same exact legislators. Well, yeah, I saw that, uh, I mean, what's his name? Former Speaker of the House is out now advertising that he is the, like, new marijuana investment guy. Oh, yeah. John Bonner. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I thought I, I thought I saw it pop across. I was watching Amazon Prime or something, and I saw it pop up, and I'm like, "What? Who is that? What are they talking about?" And I'm like, "Wait a minute." That's exactly right. That's <laughs> I was like, hypocrites. I was like, "How did how did this happen?" <laughs> so no, Any I know exactly what you're talking guys, about. Any one of those legislators yeah. that are really pushing for the legalization of marijuana have a an agenda to then leave office and go to work in the industry because they see it as a cash cow. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the inevitability of that is, I mean, you don't have to be political scientist to see that 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 the inevitability is coming so i mean i think that i don't know how it's going to happen well you know i've had people ask me about the marijuana thing what i strongly urge them to do is go out to colorado and meet with the law enforcement executives that have to deal with it who are going to tell you that they've had major spikes in property and violent crime since the implementation of legalized marijuana and then go to oregon Um, Go to Roseburg, Oregon, and I can use this as a private, perfect example. I went to Roseburg, Oregon, and I had to give a speech there. And I was there, and while I was there, I I saw these places where they sell legalized marijuana. It looked like one of these, um, it kind of reminded me of the thriller, uh, you know, the Michael Jackson uh, thriller video Mm -hmm. where you have all these people coming up out of the ground just like goblins. A bunch of people 
people standing around stoned, out of their minds, just wandering around these these hubs, these little areas where this stuff is done. I don't know. I don't want that stuff done in my community. And anybody that thinks it's okay, take a ride out there and look around before you get up on your pedestal and talk about it. Yeah. The Pacific Northwest is filled with serial killers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and Bigfoot. I blame weed. Um, <laughs> so big, Bigfoot's growing weed. Commissioner Carrick, where can we find you on the internet? You have a website, correct? Yeah, I have a website, the Carrick Group uh, dot com. Uh, I'm all over social media, Twitter, uh, on everywhere, all over. All they have to do is type in my name; they'll find me. Excellent. And we can get the books. People can get the books. Uh, uh, on Amazon, you can get it downloaded on, on Amazon. Yeah, Barnes on, and Noble. Yep, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. So you can have it on your phone. You can have it on Eric. You got it on your Kindle, is what you said, right? I do. Yep, yeah, I got it on so, my Kindle. And what's the? I just followed you on Instagram too, Commissioner. Excellent. Yes, good. Good. we've got mm-hmm. uh, okay. the new book just came out. Oh, you did a novel too. That we didn't even talk about, but that got well, published. I just did the this. novel, uh, "The Grave Above the Grave," just came out two months ago. It's doing right. well. Um, my first novel, so we'll see how it goes. Excellent. Well, this has been awesome, and uh, couldn't have been a better episode for our year anniversary. So it's been well, fantastic. guys. Thank you. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, it's good for people to hear what's out there and uh, all the best. Excellent. We appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thanks. All right, guys. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye. We love USA Canine Dog Toys. They are inspired by military objects and built to withstand the demanding use of professional canine handlers. USA Canine Dog Toys are made in the U.S. from adorable super chewer rubber compound. Ted and I love them and use them all the time. Go check them out at www.usa-k9.com. Use the promo code K9PRO. Headquartered in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Tripwire are first responders that are dedicated to serving other first responders. They believe the most highly trained ensure a safer America, and they prepare law enforcement, military, and first and emergency responders to protect our country by providing products, services, training, and relationships that no one else in this industry can touch. Head over and check them out. Tripwireops.org. That's tripwireops.org. Since 1987, Bill Heiser and Southern Coast Canine have been providing better training, better service, and better dogs. Bill personally hand-selects every dog in Europe to ensure that the quality is always up to his standards. Every employee at Southern Coast Canine is charged with being a guardian of their values. Those values guide both their business and personal relationship. They believe that their dedication to the fundamental tenets of honesty, integrity, and fair business dealings ensure a legacy of success. So when you or your canine unit is looking for that dog, the one that will perform at the highest level, be sure to give Southern Coast Canine a call at 877-903-DOGS. That's 877-903-3647. Let them know that Eric and Ted from Working Dog Radio sent you. You got your reasons I got my wants Still got that feeling but I'm too Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt.